Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. What is life like after Easter? Last weekend we came and we had a wonderful celebration. We were lifted by the music, we listened to the word, we prayed together. We went home and in the afternoon experienced the beauties of a concert that led us into deeper worship of the risen Christ. And we said, Christ is risen. And we basked in the glory of that. For a day or two or three, we pondered and reflected on the realities of the risen Christ. But then, two, three, four, five days later, life got hard. And it drove us to ask the question, what is life like after Easter? We declare that Christ is risen. And then... I think our text today helps us unpack that. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only Gospel that tells the story. I think it's a microcosm. I would suggest to you it's a miniature of what life is like after Easter. It's the story of two disciples, Cleopas and his friend. We don't know who the friend was. Some have suggested it was Peter, Simon Peter, but that runs into trouble a few verses later when Peter is already back in Jerusalem. Others, in fact, quite a few others suggest this is Cleopas's wife. But whoever the friend is, unnamed, there are two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, on their way to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection. We don't know where Emmaus was. Scholars and archaeologists have tried to sort that through, and there are two or three possible locations. One is probably the most likely location because of the distance and the direction. It's about seven miles north-northwest of Jerusalem. They're on their way to Emmaus. And while we don't know specifically where it was, there are people who have commented on the ideological realities of Emmaus. What maybe Emmaus stands for, such as the theologian and writer and poet Frederick Beekner, who says this. Beekner says, Emmaus is the place we go in order to escape. Wherever it is, we throw up our hands and say, just forget it all. It makes no difference anyway. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, and that even the noblest ideas that humans have had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish people for selfish ends. Emmaus. And so the two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. And once again, I want to suggest that Emmaus 
and the journey to it are a microcosm of life after Easter. So let's turn to that passage, Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter, and read the story of the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. It says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. What is life like after Easter? I suggest this is a microcosm of life after Easter. In fact, I noticed three things that might help us answer our question, three realities that arise out of the journey. First of all, even after Easter, on the road to Emmaus, there will be pain. Even after Easter, even after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, there will be pain. You no doubt noticed where the pain became the most intense for them as they journeyed. It's in those words in verse 21. When they, speaking to the stranger who accompanied them, said to him, But we had hoped. But we had hoped. 
We had our hopes set on him. We had hoped that God was moving in his life. We had thought that he was the one who would redeem Israel, but we had hoped. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus certainly aren't the only two disciples who've traveled that journey and who have spoken those words, who have felt that pain, that sorrow, that heartbroken reality. Those are words spoken by the infertile couple who says to the doctor, but we had hoped that we would have a house full of children, that we would hear the pitter-patter of tiny feet, that we would hear the laughter of small voices. We had hoped. They're spoken by the couple that divorces and says, we had hoped that we would grow old together. We would experience our sunset years as a couple. They're spoken by that group, that community that planted a new church with all the dreams that they could possibly muster. We're going to change our community, change our city, change our world, and then it fractured and fell apart. We had hoped. They're spoken to, by that young person who hopes to heal, heal broken bodies, speak to broken souls, and yet continues to receive letters of rejection from medical school after medical school. Spoken by that retiring couple or couple that would like to retire, we had hoped we would have enough. We could travel together, enjoy. They're words that you have spoken at times. When life ruptures and fractures and breaks apart, we had hoped. Even after Easter, on the road to Emmaus. September 8, 1998, Tuesday evening, Loma Linda, California. Austin was five years old. Miranda was two. Miranda was already down for the night upstairs. I was feeding Austin supper. Anita was upstairs in our bedroom resting. She hadn't been doing so well in the last few days. She was resting. She was pregnant. A bit down the road, when I was finishing up with Austin, I thought I ought to at least check on her, and so I ran upstairs to the bedroom, and she wasn't in the bed. So I went to the bathroom and knocked, no answer. I opened the door, and there she was on the floor, blood everywhere, ambulance, emergency room, miscarriage, We had hoped. What is life like after Easter? Well, on the road to Emmaus, there's still pain. There's a second reality that I notice on this journey to Emmaus. And that is, even after Easter, on the road to Emmaus, there is perplexity. Perplexity, bewilderment. A lack of the ability to understand and to see things clearly. 
You might miss it at first when you read, I did, but it's there. It's there. It's Jesus' question to them. Well, they don't know it's Jesus, do they? It's just the stranger that has joined them as they're walking down that road to Emmaus. The stranger joins them, and there in verse 17 says to them, what are you discussing as you walk along? What are you discussing? Discussing. It's an interesting word in the original because in the original it means to throw back and forth to throw back and forth. I think this. Well, I think that. Well, what about this? Well, did you see that? Well, I read. Well, this rabbi says. Well, what about that other viewpoint? What are you discussing? What are you throwing back and forth as you walk on this journey, as you try to sort out all these events that have happened, as you try to put them in the context of the Scripture, as you try to understand, as you are perplexed? Walter Liefeld and David Powell in their commentary talking about that verse and two or three right before it say of this brief section, the scene in verses 14 to 17 is of a persistent but rather baffled attempt to understand the meaning of this most momentous weekend in history. Perplexed. Bewildered. How does this make sense in the context of the plan of God as we understand it? I have to tell you that as a Christ follower, as a pastor, I have a dislike for people like me, and I have done it myself, who spout pious platitudes and easy answers and bumper sticker theology and place theological band-aids on gaping wounds by trying to provide trite, easy answers. There are some things, the answer to which the best thing we can say is, I don't know. I don't know. I'm bewildered. I'm perplexed. In the words of the writer Richard Foster, he says, we must admit at times, and these are his words, to a profound perplexity. Where is God in all of this? I think my years in chaplaincy up at the medical center, seven, seven and a half years, squeezed out of me the pious platitudes, standing there wanting to utter them, but knowing I, I can't say that. I don't know why you as a teenager are now facing the rest of your life in a wheelchair. I don't know. I don't know why you as a young woman on 9200 are coming to the end of your life and you're in your 20s. I don't know. I don't know what to say to the children in the emergency department whose father coming home from work is killed in a car crash. What do you say? We must admit at times that the journey to Emmaus, even after the resurrection, has perplexity. Christ is risen, and I'm bewildered. 
Because the truth is, sometimes to the circumstances, the trials, the challenges, and the traumas of life, the best thing we can say is Christ is risen. He is risen. But I can't explain this. So cling to that. Christian artist and singer-songwriter talk show host Sheila Walsh writes about such things. She says, Our paradigm of what a Christian life is supposed to be hugely affects whether we become bitter or not. So many of the people I work with are dealing with disappointment, disappointment with themselves, and I sure understand that, disappointment with other people, and disappointment with God because he doesn't do what we think he's going to do. I got one of the most interesting letters at the 700 Club from a young woman in her mid-20s who had cancer and MS. She said, sometimes I watch your program and I'm helped, and sometimes I want to take my shoe off and throw it through the screen. I was so fascinated by her honesty that I called her. We became friends. One day she said, one of the things I hate about what you do is you always present people whose marriages get better in 10 minutes, people who get healed, people who have the nice packaged answers. She said, what about people like me who are dying and still love God? What about people who take very few steps but every step leaves a big impression in the snow because, because it costs every ounce of strength they have left. She changed my perspective, says Walsh. Christianity is not this nice, everything's going to work out okay attitude. When you think of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept because it wasn't supposed to be like this. He had spoken this beautiful world into existence, and it was so broken, so messed up. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give is just a dose of reality that life down here is disappointing, that God doesn't always give us the answers, but that he does always give us himself. Christ is risen, and I am bewildered. What is life like after Easter? On the road to Emmaus, there's pain, there's perplexity. But on the road to Emmaus, there is also the feeling of abandonment, of aloneness, of the absence of God. Two verses I want to reread. Notice what they say, Luke 24, 15, and 16. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He's there. He's walking right beside them. If you were to follow them, there are not two sets of footprints, but three sets of footprints on the path. 
He is with him, but for some reason, a divine veil has descended around him, so they can't see him. They can't recognize and understand he's right here. In their mind, well, Jesus is back there in the tomb. Well, I don't know if he's in the tomb, actually, because our women came. I don't know about what they said because the disciples went. They didn't see him. We don't know where he is, but what we do know, he's not with us. And the stranger says, is that so? Hmm. It's interesting what New Testament scholar R.T. France says about that verse that they were kept from recognizing him. Simple words, one sentence. The language in Greek here is quite forceful. Their eyes were overpowered. Overpowered. You can't see this yet. And the text doesn't tell us why. Why can't we see him yet? It doesn't say. But I do wonder, Jesus had something to teach them. In fact, we, we, we know from what Luke says, Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey. You read in Desire of Ages. Desire of Ages says the stranger joined them at the beginning, early on in their journey. So if we're walking along just like we normally do, and if at times we stop and engage in a more heated part of the discussion, who knows, two, three, four hours on this journey. And he wants to open to them the Scriptures and change their paradigm. Do you realize that there are some things we hear in pain that we never can hear when all is well? Do you know that there are some things we simply cannot hear when we are filled with the exhilaration and the excitement of the fact that the tomb back there is empty and Christ is risen? What about you, parent? Have you ever tried to explain a complicated math problem to your child to whom you've just given the great news that we're going tomorrow to Disneyland? As they're hopping around the room, you say, okay, now let me explain this math problem to you. Good luck with that. Their eyes were overpowered, and as they were overpowered, this stranger just starts perusing the pages of Scripture, and a light begins to dawn. Their paradigm begins to shift. They're feeling the aloneness, the abandonment, of God. And he wants to enter into that. You have felt that. I have experienced that. I suppose we're all affected in some way, sometimes differently, by stress and burdens in our lives. In the years that I've been privileged to serve as a pastor at this church that I love, there have been so many wonderful experiences, and there have been also some very dark times. There have been many times when I've awakened at 2 or 3 or 4, 
And I just know the night's over. I can lie here, but I'm not going back to sleep. So I'll often slip out of bed so as not to wake Anita and go out onto the road and walk. Walk in the darkness. Because in the darkness, no one can see your face. And ask God, where are you in this? How are we to relate to this? What are we to do with this? God, why don't you, why don't you speak, reveal yourself? And right there on the streets of Redlands, I walked the road to Emmaus, where even after Easter, there are feelings of abandonment. What is life like after Easter? Well, there's pain, there's perplexity. There are feelings of abandonment. But there is also one last reality. And this one, friends, we cannot miss. It might be easy to miss it because it's contained in a small word, a word that I first became most aware of a couple of years ago. I had the privilege of speaking for the Loma Linda homecoming weekend we were talking with the planners and others. What's the program? What's the theme? What's the focus? I was trying to sort through what to say. And it was then that through a writer named James Wells, that little word came to me. It's just a little word. But it's a word that if you read this journey to Emmaus, appears at least five times. Here's the word. With. W-I-T-H, with. At Wells' prodding from his pen, I started looking at this book and started realizing that maybe Wells is right. Maybe with is the most important word in this book because it's all over this book. Time and time and time again. And it describes the reality of God and his relationship with his people. It almost doesn't matter where you open the book, you encounter it. You encounter it at the beginning of the story. Book of Genesis, there's Jacob fleeing for his life from his enraged brother, and God comes and says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm with you. Joseph, sold by his siblings, Egyptian slavery, now falsely accused in the pit of an Egyptian dungeon. And in that chapter, where it describes that experience over and over again, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord, it go, and I finally want to say to the writer, okay, I got it. He's with him. Moses, confronting God. God, I don't even want to enter that desert with this stiff-necked group of people unless I know you're going with me. 
Isaiah, in the midst of a people rebelling against God, not knowing what to do because he describes the people as being sick from head to toe, and God says to him, Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. And then a baby shrieks and squeals and screams his way into the world in a little hamlet called Bethlehem. And the name comes from the divine throne. Name him Emmanuel, God with us. And that baby will grow up to be a teacher. And before he ascends to his father, he will give a global mandate to his followers. Go into all the world and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. And then John the Revelator Penning his vision, sees its culmination in that moment that he describes by saying, and God himself will make his dwelling with the people. It's all through this book. And it's all over this journey to Emmaus as well. These two disciples who are certain they're alone who are in pain, who are perplexed, who, who don't know where to turn. And the stranger walks with them, with them, with them. Friend, he's with you in your pain right now. I don't know what happened this week. Something happened to somebody I know. We declared Christ is risen and we celebrated. And now, hurting, perplexed, alone, is this life after Easter? What is life like after Easter? You know what it's like? It's like life. It's like life. Except for one thing. Christ is risen. And he is with you.